0: Hello my geeselings. it is mother goose Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 65. This episode is with Tanya Lombroso who is professor of psychology at Princeton University where she also directs the concepts and cognition lab. So Tanya is a very interesting character in that she is both a philosopher and a psychologist. So she did her undergraduate here at Stanford in symbolic systems and philosophy and symbolic systems is sort of our version of cognitive science. And then she did her graduate work in psychology at Harvard. So we talk a bit about where she fits into the landscape here. She publishes in both philosophy and psychology journals and how she sees the two disciplines as interacting. But most of the discussion centers around her work, which writ large concerns explanation. So we talk about what our intuitions are surrounding explanation what sorts of phenomena when we go about our our lives what sort of observations seem to call out for explanation what makes a good answer or a good explanation Uh, we also talk about explanations that might fall under specific categories so explanations in science explanations in religion uh, moral explanations And then we also talk about some adjacent concerns. So we talk about Mars levels of explanations. So different levels at which we can explain the human mind and whether or not science can actually end up explaining the human mind. So this conversation was super interesting to me. Uh, I love talking to people about data and you don't often get to talk about data so much if you're just talking philosophy. And Tanya is also like encyclopedia. So everything I asked her about, she immediately had this like whip smart, coherent answer. And that made her particularly fun and easy to talk to. So without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Tanya. I noticed that you actually did your undergraduate work in symbolic systems and philosophy here at Stanford before you went to Harvard for your PhD in psychology. And I was wondering how you made that decision and why the psychology department seemed like the right place for you to be rather than philosophy.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. It's one that I struggled with for most of my four years as an undergraduate. So I went to Stanford, already knowing that I was very excited about cognitive science. But at the time, I didn't know which aspect of cognitive science I would pursue. I think, if anything, if you'd asked me when I was 18, I might have said neuroscience. But a, a few things happened um, when I got to Stanford. So one was that fall quarter of my freshman year, I took a philosophy of science class, and I loved that class. Um, it, it wasn't mm. my first exposure to philosophy, I'd been sort of lucky to have some earlier exposure to philosophy than that, but I really, really adored that class and the subsequent philosophy of science that I took. And so that got me more and more excited about philosophy of science. And I think at the same time, I became slightly disenchanted with some aspects of psychology and neuroscience. At least I felt like they, a lot of it wasn't pursuing the questions that I was most excited about. And there, it was very clear to me that there were various methodological kinds of limitations, which I think are just you know inherent to science or are always up against what our best tools are for measuring things. And so I think that combination meant that I spent A lot of my sophomore and junior year deciding between becoming a philosopher or becoming um, some sort of psychologist where a lot of things were on the table at that point. I I liked visual perception a lot. So I was considering pursuing visual psychophysics. I was interested in cognitive development. I was interested in high-level cognition. And I think where I got to by the end, probably around the end of junior year, but basically by the point I had to be deciding about graduate school, was that I wanted to do a little bit of all of those things. In particular, I think I realized that I was most excited by questions and high-level cognition, but that I really liked the way of of thinking about problems that comes from philosophy. And I really am interested in a lot of the normative questions that come out of philosophy. Um, But I liked data, and I liked being able to approach (laughs) questions empirically. And so I I felt that I would be able to pursue more philosophy as a psychologist than I would be able to pursue psychology as a philosopher. And it was sort of that... Perceived asymmetry, at least we can come back to whether or not it's a real asymmetry, but that perceived asymmetry at the time made me think that if I wanted to do a bit of both, I was going to be better off um, pursuing a PhD in psychology or cognitive science, which is which is what I did. I mean, It's also worth saying, though, that when I was looking at programs and thinking about PhD advisors, I was very aware of uh, the extent to which they would support that interest or not. I mean, I think there's enormous variation in philosophers' uh appreciation for of the value of philosophy. And I I went to work with Susan Carey at Harvard, who's somebody yeah, yeah. who is, you know, extremely philosophically knowledgeable and sophisticated mm-hmm. and very much appreciates the value of philosophy. And so that I knew I, even though I was in a psychology PhD program, I knew that I was being supervised by somebody who actually understood why I thought there was value to pursuing philosophy and trying to integrate it with my empirical work.
0: Yeah, I've I've heard that about Susan Carey as well. Um, I've actually never taken a philosophy of science course, which is a huge gap. I'm mm-hmm. taking one with uh, Michael Friedman, though, in in the spring. So I'm really looking forward to that. But do you remember what it was about that first philosophy of science course that grabbed you in particular?
1: It's a good question. So it was the first class I took was a general philosophy of science. Uh, it was taught by Peter Godfrey Smith, who was ultimately my undergraduate advisor there in the program. Um, but then I went on to take a lot of other classes on explanation and confirmation with other faculty, and I, I in general, just really like philosophy of science. If I had to, hmm. if I had to speculate, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I, I call it speculating because as a psychologist, I'm very um, skeptical of my my own like introspective sense of what what drove a particular yeah. reaction, and also my own mm-hmm. memory of everything. But you know, a lot of what I think got me excited about it was the same sorts of things that got me excited about psychology and cognitive science in the first place, which is that a lot of philosophy of science is really concerned, even though they don't talk about it in this way, with questions about learning, right? So for a scientist trying to make sense of the world, how should we represent it? You know, sort of like, what's the structure of a theory? what should our goals be, what makes a good scientific explanation, and so on. And all of those questions have natural analogs, if you think about just an individual trying to make sense of the world, right? So it's individual cognitive agents we are trying to make sense of data, trying to come up with representations of reality. We you know, use them for prediction and control and explanation. We have uh, strong and systematic intuitions about what makes a good explanation and so on. And so I think I saw a lot of things that I had already been thinking about, probably not so much in the context of science, but thinking about in the context of just everyday human learning. But I saw those questions being formulated very precisely. And I saw sort of sketches of the possible space of answers you could have and how, you know, answering one thing over here might have implications over here and so on, right? I think one of the like big values of philosophy can do is is sort of like sketch the conceptual landscape of possibilities in a way that's really, really useful. And so I think probably both the, the content area there, but also just it being a really good exemplar of this thing that philosophy does well, um, I think we're, were exciting to me.
0: I, I saw that your undergraduate thesis in philosophy was called Optimality and Teleology and Adaptationist Explanations of Cognition. And then your doctoral thesis was called Understanding Explanation, Studies in Teleology, Simplicity and Causal Knowledge and you're still working on explanation teleology and a whole host of related issues. Yeah. So you you mentioned that you've always been interested in learning and explanation and what was it that really first grabbed you about this area of research and has managed to hold your interest for so long?
1: I mean I suppose part of it comes from uh, being the sort of person who's inclined to ask why questions and then to and then ask why I'm asking why questions, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So thinking about like, what role does explaining play for us? Why do we engage in this activity? Does it play an important role in learning? Does it lead us astray? What's its value? And so on, right? So some of that might just come from being someone who is naturally inquisitive in that way and being someone who's naturally drawn towards kind of meta issues in the way that I think a lot of philosophers are. And then if you combine those, you're mm-hmm. going to start to try to explain explanation. Um, that's one part of it. I think another part of it is that it seemed to me like there was a real gap in our understanding. And I think this was a more salient gap when I started my career than it is now, because other people are doing relevant, more relevant work now, but, um, it was sort of a gap on two fronts. So on the philosophy of science side, and I'd say epistemology as well, although I didn't appreciate this till till later, I think, you know, there's really fascinating work that, uh, tries to look at the, how science itself works and largely asks these normative questions about how science ought to work or what you know we ought to consider a good explanation and so on, or how explanations ought to guide inference in the case of certain issues in epistemology and so on. Um, and it just seemed to me like those questions went hand in hand with lots of empirical questions about human psychology that overwhelmingly philosophers of science and epistemologists were not thinking about. And so I think my interest in the philosophy really shed light on what seemed like this empirical lacuna on the philosophy side. And then when I went to psychology, I didn't find that psychologists had filled that lacuna particularly, mm. right? Even though there, there was a lot of interest in explanation in various ways, like for example, how we pr- explain social behavior in social psychology and the development of children's explanations and so on. There wasn't that much engagement with the kinds of questions about explanation that come up in philosophy of science and epistemology and so i think f- from both sides i sort of felt like there was um there was a salient gap that seemed to me to be very important and interesting um, and i've spent parts of my career trying to fill that gap I, certainly a mm-hmm. lot more work to, to be done and, and as i said at this point i feel like there's more other people who are working on aspects of that than there were uh you know, I, how old was I when I came across this for the first time, but you know, uh, 20 years ago or so.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned this empirical lacuna and that's one of the things that I'm most excited about, excited to talk about, because as somebody who sits in the armchair or desk Mm -hmm. chair and and does uh, philosophy, I don't get to see that side so much. And in your 2015 paper, explanatory preferences shape learning and inference you write that children and adults have have strong systematic intuitions about what constitutes a good explanation and while i was immediately curious because i I, the the phrase systematic intuitions Mm -hmm. raises my uh (laughs) hackles i'm so i'm curious about intuitions because philosophers love to talk about intuitions but i was also curious how they how you experiment on this or run experiments about this to empirically confirm your hypotheses.
1: Right. So there's, there's lots of different approaches. I'd say the single approach that I've followed uh, most extensively in my research is that you give people some sort of situation where there's a why question and there are candidate explanations um, and they have to rate how good they think the explanation is. And so you can ask that in various ways. One thing you can do is you can give them like a seven point rating scale and ask them, how good you think the explanation is or how well you think it answers the question or how satisfying they find it as an answer to the question. And and we've, you know, different studies used variations on those kinds of wording. Um, But in those cases, really, you're presenting people with the explanations and you're saying uh, what they they accept. Um, Another approach is to see what they spontaneously generate, right? You give people why questions and see what they come up with. Um, Another approach is that you ask people not how good the explanation is, but how likely they think it is to be true. Um, and that mm-hmm. then then you you know you have to think about well, what's the relationship between that judgment about what's likely to be true and the quality of the explanation and so on. Um, and so it varies across studies, but I'd say those are the the, the two most common sorts of methods
0: so how, can you give me an example of of the sort of why questions you might ask in a study?
1: Sure and I mean of course it depends on what question we're asking uh, with the study, mm-hmm. but I'll give you I'll give you a very straightforward example so, One idea that comes up in philosophy in lots of places and in psychology as well, is the idea that people like simpler explanations. Uh, And of course, the moment you start thinking about that, it becomes very unclear what simplicity means, or you realize you have to be more precise about what sort of metric you're talking about for simplicity is applied to explanations. And so in my research, we've looked at a few different metrics for for simplicity, but let's just take a, a a very straightforward kind of case where you're thinking about causal explanation, where you observe two effects, and they can be explained by appeal to a common cause that explains both of those effects or two independent causes that each explain one effect. So let's say that these are two symptoms, we'll call them S1 and S2. And so one possibility is that disease D1 causes both symptoms S1 and S2. And so you explain S1 and S2 by appeal to D1. Another possibility is that disease D2 causes just symptom S1 and disease D3 causes just symptom S2. And so you can explain both symptoms by appeal to the conjunction of diseases D2 and D3. Now we need a whiteboard, but hopefully, hopefully we're okay. So far. So, in that case, we might be able to think about like, okay, well, it seems like the common cause explanation is simpler. It's simpler in the sense that it posits fewer causes. It's also simpler in the Mm -hmm. sense that it posits fewer causes that are themselves unexplained, you know, sort of reduces what you're trying to explain to a smaller amount of things that you just have to like posit or assume are true. Um, So do people prefer simpler explanations in this sense? And so you can, construct situations where you basically teach people about the causal structure of these diseases and symptoms. You give them a particular token event where a particular individual has symptoms S1 and S2, and you ask them what they think the best explanation is or the most likely explanation or which explanation they think is most satisfying. Um, and so when you do that, you find that people much prefer the simpler D1 explanation to the to the D2 and D3 explanation. So that's our like first data point, right? We've just found that there's a systematic preference. But now, of course, we want to know why they have that systematic preference. Are they really favoring simplicity as such? Or do they just think that's more likely to be true on the assumption that, say, diseases are rare and about equally, about equally rare? Um, And so now we have to get a little bit more sophisticated. And so we do a bunch of experiments where we basically train people not only about what the causal structure is, but about what the base rates of the diseases are and about their conditional probabilities and so on. And I think that the best way that we've done this is by basically giving people lots and lots of data, lots of examples. So they learn sort of in the way that they might about the real world, about the structure of these diseases and symptoms. Um, And under those circumstances, we we find that they continue to prefer... A simpler explanation more often than they ought to in light of the probabilistic evidence that they have. Um, and so that can make us a little bit more confident that there really is something like a preference for simpler explanations in the sense that's not just the consequence of kind of reasonable probabilistic assumptions in these underspecified scenarios.
0: So when, when you refer to the systematic intuitions about what constitutes a good explanation, is that just a reference to, a preference for simplicity or are there some other um, systematic intuitions that people have? Yeah, there's several others that have been pretty robustly Mm -hmm.
1: documented in the literature. So I will tell you some of them. Um, Mm -hmm. People prefer explanations that are broader in the sense that they account for uh, all of the, all of the explanandum basically, right? So if the explanandum has multiple parts, you're gonna prefer an explanation that accounts for all of it. there is evidence that people prefer explanations that are that are teleological under some some conditions right so a teleological explanation is an explanation that appeals to a function or goal uh, and you find um particular developmental trends and trends with adults about the conditions under which they prefer such explanations so they they don't prefer them for everything um but if you're talking about a human made artifact and I say you know like why does why does this have, I don't know, these three sharp points or something like that? It seems like people are looking for the function of that. Like, why is it it designed Mm -hmm. to have those three sharp points? Yeah. Um, Often in the case of biological organisms, if they have something that like sort of plausibly looks like a parent design or an adaptation, say like something like, why do zebras have stripes? It seems like they're after a geological explanation. Um, And kids seem to prefer these even in conditions that seem uh, potentially unwarranted to adults. So, you know, why are there lions for going in the zoo? Why are there mountains for climbing? <laughs> um, young kids will will at least sometimes say things like that. So that's another dimension of explanation that's been studied. Um, th- there's a bunch more. Before you go to- on to another <laughs> yeah. one, I'm, I'm yeah.
0: curious about the children. Is, is an idea or a hypothesis for why children prefer these teleological explanations because it might serve some sort of adaptive benefit to promote learning or curiosity or something along these lines?
1: Yes, I find that reasonably plausible. I'd say that's not the main explanation that's been offered. So one of the main explanations that's been offered is that it's an overgeneralization of a strategy that actually does make sense for human artifacts and for human intentional behavior, right? So if you're looking at things that are actually intentional or actually designed, like human goal-directed action and artifacts that we construct. For those things, it makes a lot of sense that you might prefer teleological explanations because typically they are warranted and typically they will allow you to learn a lot about what's going on in those circumstances. And so one hypothesis that we basically just like overgeneralize that to cases where it doesn't belong. And usually that overgeneralization itself is not explained as having a learning benefit, but I think it, it wouldn't be too big of a stretch to try to develop a story like that. I mean, one, one idea that I've always found kind of compelling is that um, uh, actually I think this is a paper by Peter Godfrey Smith. He He goes through three different flavors of adaptationism in the context of biology. And one of them he calls methodological adaptationism. And the idea there is that you don't actually have to assume that most things in the biological world are adaptations. You know, in fact, products of natural selection and so on. Nonetheless, it might be a good methodological principle to kind of start out with that assumption. Uh, And then, you know, sometimes the world's going to tell you you're wrong and you'll end up with a different view, Um, but maybe methodologically that was sort of like a good starting point. And so you, you could imagine, I mean, I should say he doesn't ultimately, I don't think endorse that, but this is a paper where he goes through just, just distinguishes these three kinds of adaptations. But you might imagine that that's a kind of a plausible psychological hypothesis uh, along the lines of what you're suggesting, right? Like maybe assuming something has a function or purpose is a good starting point, Some of the time we're going to be wrong, but having had that as a default starting point might be a pretty good way to reliably get to somewhere that's actually informative. Um, I mean, there's there's some arguments like that for simplicity, actually, right? So both Popper um, and I think Kevin Kelly both have uh, arguments that kind of have this sort of like this sort of flavor where it's not that the world is necessarily simple, but that there might be a kind of methodological benefit in terms of the efficiency of our inquiry to starting out, Mm -hmm. assuming something simpler and then letting the data or the world push us towards something more complex.
0: I was asking, I guess I was more particularly mm. about children, because I thought mm. that you you said maybe children are more biased towards these teleological yeah. explanations yeah. than yeah. adults are. And I was wondering what accounts for that.
1: Oh, I see. Um, so usually so the people who advocate for the strongest views that children have as bias usually think that adults maintain it in some form as well. So it's not that it entirely goes away. It's that we get better at inhibiting it, basically, um, is what those stories are. And so you'd probably want to tell a similar story for adults as for kids. Um, But I take your point. And I I don't think we have a lot of evidence there. I mean, I think really what you'd want to have are experimental situations or possibly some sort of simulation where you have an agent that has this sort of preference and an agent that doesn't, and maybe show that the one that has this sort of preference ends up Know, converging to more accurate views or discovering more stuff or something like that. And I, I don't know of anything along those lines. I mean, there's certainly claims, and I think this is incredibly plausible, that kids being curious and explanation-driven is going to, to lead to learning, right? But whether being curious mm-hmm. and explanation-driven specifically in a teleological direction is going to have yeah. learning benefits, I, I can't think of any evidence that speaks to that directly.
0: Okay. And so I, I did cut you off. We talked about simplicity, oh, sure. teleology. Yeah. What were some of the the other systematic intuitions? Yeah, that so have? I'll tell
1: you some of the others. And some of these get um I'll just I'll just preface this by saying there's a further question for all of these about whether people are doing something reasonable, rational, incredibly stupid. Yeah. You know, we can we a can pursue that. Percie- yeah, that's right. That's right. We can pursue that. But um And I'm guessing that
0: that's more of a Is that more going to be a philosophical question rather than a psychological question? Or as far as who's going to be asking that?
1: Um, I think you get a bit of both. I think when psychologists ask it, the normativity is often not so explicit, right? So I think psychologists are not likely to ask, ought we to have this preference or something like that? But psychologists will talk about whether it's good or bad for learning, for example, or whether or not it's okay. rational. And so I think when you, when you start unpacking what that means, there's going to be normative notions built mm-hmm. in there. Um, okay, so here's some others. People seem to prefer explanations that make fewer unverified predictions. This is a phenomenon referred to as latent scope. Um, so if um, there's two explanations and one predicts that if we were to take a blood test, you would have a particular result, but the other one makes no prediction with respect to that people prefer the explanation that doesn't go out on a limb and make a, an unverified prediction. Um, there is evidence that people prefer explanations. So you look like you're going to ask a follow-up to that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I am here. Cur- I, I don't think I fully understand the latent scope. Can you maybe flesh out that example yes, a little bit yes, more? Yes. And I yeah. should say these examples <laughs>
1: come, come largely from research by Sam Johnson and some of his collaborators. So, they have come up with cases where, you know, for example, there's two diseases that could explain your symptoms. Okay. One disease predicts that if we were to take your temperature, for example, you, it would be whatever, above 100. And the other one makes no predictions about your temperature, or maybe predicts a normal value for your temperature. But we haven't taken your temperature yet, so we don't know. Under those circumstances, people prefer explanations that do not make an unverified prediction like the prediction that your temperature will be over 100, which is unverified okay. because we have not taken your temperature. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, that totally makes sense.
1: Um, and, okay. and just as I tried to sort of cash out for the example of simplicity, when they do these, these studies, they try to figure out whether or not this can be fully explained by people just being rational Bayesian agents, you know, making inferences based on uh-huh. the data they have so far, and they find that they can't. So it looks like people have this preference, even in circumstances where it seems like normatively you probably shouldn't. Um, mm-hmm. Another one is that people prefer explanations with reductive jargon. This was a, a finding that, um, from Dina Weisberg. So for example, if you give people a psychology explanation and you throw in some neuroscience, uh, and you, the, the neuroscience you throw in, at least according to experts, is totally irrelevant to the explanation. It's just sort of like a little bit of extra neuroscience jargon thrown in. Um mm-hmm uh, novices like those explanations better when they have reductive jargon. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a study where we, um, gave people like, we sort of like labeled the phenomenon that was being appealed to in an explanation. So these were cases where you were explaining a person's behavior and the person's behavior is explained by a tendency to engage in that behavior, which is a pretty circular sort of explanation. I mean, I think not sort of strictly hundred percent circular, but you know, not, not super informative, but if you just add a label, so why did they do that? Condition one, because they have a tendency to do that. Condition two, because they have dipathopy, a condition that's characterized by a tendency to do that. Just adding the label there makes people think it's a better explanation. Um and we have some and, evidence for why.
0: Oh well, if you're gonna tell me why. Yeah, then that, is that where you can ask? That's really, <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I was gonna ask. I mean, I was gonna first put forth the the possibility that I mean, what sounds reasonable to me is that it seems like some sort of appeal to expertise if somebody's using words like this especially if you're the novice and you don't know your your uh, impulse is just to believe it
1: yeah that's right so what we looked at in the original paper there was whether or not by virtue of having the label people basically think you're you're pointing to something which is like an underlying cause you know like i don't know what that refers to but i'm going to sort of treat it as like a placeholder for the thing that's causing this behavior. And we found mm-hmm. some evidence for that. And then there was some follow-up work um, from other labs that looked more directly at the expertise idea that you're suggesting. And I think they talk about it in terms of, I think it's community entrenchment, I think is their term. But basically the idea that to the extent a term is entrenched and seems to be related to a community of experts, people also seem to find those explanations to be better. Hmm. Um, I'm sure there's other other explanatory phenomena that are not immediately coming to mind Um but, I mean, the, the ones I've listed are some of some of the ones that have been, I think, you know, most clearly documented across multiple papers.
0: No, that's, no, that's great and, and all really fascinating. And fo- so following up on just what these systematic intuitions are, you also write that these preference have a systemic impact on explanation-based processes. And I read that and I kind of read it a few times. And what is an explanation-based <laughs> process? <laughs>
1: Fair enough. Okay. So I think there's two main things um, that I have in mind when I think about that. So one is a process sort of like inference, the best explanation, right? So the idea is that you're trying to figure out what's going on in a particular case. I don't think in all cases, but I think in many cases, the way we do that is by trying to construct and evaluate explanations. We try to figure out what would best explain this thing I'm trying to make sense of. And then perhaps we infer that that's true. Right. So that would be an example of an explanation based process. It's a particular process of inference okay. that involves explanation. The other role that I've um, studied for explanation that I think is, is is related but somewhat different is the role of explanation in learning. So that's a case where, you know, I mean, when we do this in the lab, we bring people into the lab, we present them with novel evidence, and their task is to, for example, figure out what causal relationships hold in this particular like novel world we're showing them, or to figure out how to categorize things, like what's you know, sort of what the different categories are of, of objects. And I think in those circumstances, one way that you can learn is by trying to engage in explanation. You sort of ask yourself, okay, well, why did that effect occur, or why does this particular object belong to this category? And that might lead you to do something like in front of the best explanation, but it might have other consequences too. Like, for example, it might affect what data you look for next or whether or not you reject certain kinds of hypotheses and so on. And so I would also consider that to be a sort of explanation-based learning process.
0: Okay, so the systematic intuitions that you've identified impact these explanation-based processes because they sort of determine the way that we go about are explanation based processes is yes. that okay roughly putting it together yes. yes, okay okay great well okay that this is this has all been a really good introduction to i think some of the other areas that i wanted to get to and you recently wrote a paper with emily lequin and i think it might this might be an upcoming paper that's not published yet on the select the selectivity of explanation mm-hmm. is that right yes okay. that is and right. In the abstract, you pointed out that only some observations prompt us to ask why, and only some answers are satisfying. And my common sense, or just my introspection, though, as you mentioned earlier, we can't really trust that, (laughs) tells me that this is absolutely true. But how, as a psychologist, and I guess this goes back to filling that empirical lacuna, did you go about studying this phenomenon?
1: Right. Right so i i will say for the first one the selectivity and what we even seek explanations for in some ways that one is trickier because i think we are largely unaware of the things that don't call out to us and demand explanation right those are precisely the things uh-huh. that like we, we just ignore but one thing that we've done is we looked for a variation in the extent to which people think that a question demands an explanation Um, or or as we've come to think about it, what we call explanation-seeking curiosity. So I think we're all familiar with your curiosity is roughly, and by explanation-seeking curiosity, we just basically mean curiosity about why or how something is the case. So for example, your curiosity about the answer to a why question would reflect explanation-seeking curiosity. So one thing we can do is get lots of questions and Mm -hmm. try to see if there is systematic variation in which of those questions people feel curiosity about the answer towards or things sort of demand an explanation
0: so you you'd maybe just put a bunch of questions on a sheet of paper and give them to subjects and have them maybe rank them in terms of interest
1: um we could do that um i'll tell you in a minute how we've in fact gotten the questions because that's part of what's challenging but yeah that's the basic idea right um and then we ask them you know typically on a rating scale curious they are about the answer and then to kind of verify that that means something we might then allow them to reveal the answer to a subset of the questions and we make sure that 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 what they reveal corresponds to what they told us they were actually curious about and it does Um, so in the first study where we looked at this we were partially interested in whether or not we'd see variation across domains in what people thought demanded an explanation and Part of what motivated that was thinking that there might be differences in the role of inquiry across domains and in particular across domains that serve different sorts of psychological functions. So we can try out your, see if you have intuitions here, you know, um, to consider something like, like why or how the moons cause the tides. Like that just seems to me something that like that has to have an explanation and and it like science owes us an explanation. Maybe we don't know Mm -hmm. everything about the phenomenon yet. I mean, often things are still unknown to us, but like, you know, that demands an explanation. Whereas um, if you think about questions that are sort of internal to a religion, and I suspect the intuitions here work better for somebody who actually has the corresponding religious belief. But if you ask something like, why does God answer prayers? Or why did Jesus turn water into wine? It's less clear to me that those demand an explanation in the same way. Um, it seems like you might think, at least for a certain kind of believer, they might be willing to say, like, look, there doesn't have to be an answer to that. It's a mystery. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, So we tested that basically. And the way we did it is that we found these um, websites where people go and post answers, post questions, sorry, and answers. So I think, I think for that one, we used answers.com and people go to these websites and they can self-classify their questions and they can sort of like under science, pose a question or under religion, pose a question and so on. And so we pulled questions that users had actually posted to these forums um, and I think we basically selected them for being, oh, I think they all have to be why questions. I'd have to go back to see if we also used how questions, but I think it was, it was why questions um, across the domains of science, religion, philosophy, psychology, medicine, and math. I think were the ones that we looked at. And for something like 12 questions from each domain, we asked people to what extent they thought the question demanded an explanation. And what we found is that people think that the math and science questions like, definitely demand an explanation of oh, medicine as well. Like those things... Uh, you know, do demand an explanation. They thought that religion and um, I think there was like a spirituality or pseudoscience category as well. Those were the ones that demanded an explanation the least. Um, and philosophy and psychology fell in between. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Not entirely. We can speculate about what that means. Um, yeah. So that was the, that was the first sort of like foray into trying to look at that question. And it was in that case, what we were looking at was systematic variation across domains.
0: Now, is this is this your paper with Emily LeQuinn or some of the work that you've done with Telly Davoudi?
1: What I just described is a paper with Emily Lequin and Emily Matz is another author. That one's called Science Demands Explanation, Religion Tolerates Mystery. Okay. But we but then Emily and I did a variety of follow-ups. And so we we pulled a bunch of questions from uh, textbooks from science and social sciences. We got questions from a book that was questions and answers for children. Um, you know, there's, all, there's like a lot of these, like, you know, interesting question answer books for, for kids. And so we use one of those. We pulled questions from um, Reddit's explain like I'm five subreddit where people ask lots of factual questions. So we we did lots of things like that and then sort of looked for variation in what we called explanation seeking curiosity. But one, one really big problem with this is that all of those are examples of questions that somebody asked and that somebody thought was, were sufficiently reasonable or valuable to ask that they put them on a website or publish them in a book and so on, right? And so we take all of those to basically be looking at variation in explanation, seeking curiosity. That's already at the high end of what people think demands an explanation, right? So for mm-hmm. example, you're not going to find questions like, um, why do tables have four chairs? Why do Why do tables have four legs typically, mm. right? Like things that people kind of like take, take themselves maybe already have a partial answer for. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to find things like, um one of my favorite examples is why do uh why do chairs tend to have a, a number of legs that's a perfect square? Right, which is true. Most of them have four legs, four is a perfect square, but there seems to be just something like ill-posed about that question, right? Like some there's some yeah. like presupposition in the way that you're asking it that so one of the big challenges with addressing this question is that if you already look at like actually naturalistically occurring questions, you're only looking at questions that like already meet a really high threshold for people thinking that there's something there to be explained. Um, And so we've tried a few things to try to get less good questions, (laughs) Um, but that is a challenge in, in, in studying this, right? Like measuring the things that people don't ask basically.
0: Mm -hmm. And so there's this spectrum between, I think it was science on the one hand and religion on the other with psychology and uh, philosophy in the middle. But where do everyday sort of questions fall into this? I mean, you you mentioned some of them, like tables having four legs. But what makes a question or observation an everyday observation salient, salient and demand uh, an explanation? Did you come to any conclusions about that?
1: Partially. So, I'd say the the main result from my paper with Emily on. on what we call explanation seeking curiosity is that the two, two of the biggest predictors of somebody being curious about the answer to a question is that they think they're going to learn something and they think what they're going to learn is useful or valuable. Um, And so uh, those two dimensions should, should provide at least part of the answer to what you're asking. And I think there's some additional things that are probably playing a role that we don't have very good direct evidence for. So one of them is that, you have to be able to formulate the question, right? So I think there's some cases where if you had the question presented to you, you might realize that you would learn something useful and valuable, but there might be roadblocks to like even formulating the question. Um, and I think something that might go hand in hand with that is I think you have to be able to perhaps recognize an alternative to how things are, right? So often when you ask an explanation, you're sort of implicitly or explicitly asking, you know, well, why X like, as opposed to Y? And the as opposed to why is not always salient there, but usually there is some other kind of like foil or alternative there in the background that's part of what prompts us to ask the question. So if you can't imagine any other way the world could be, you might not even recognize that there's something to explain there, right? So if like if it doesn't occur to you that the sky could be some color other than blue, um, then you might not it might not occur to you to ask why is the sky blue. You have to sort of first be able to perhaps represent or conceive of the possibility of it being otherwise. Uh, And so I think all of those might be sort of important prerequisites to even being in the position to formulate and evaluate a question in order to figure out the extent to which you anticipate that it will teach you something useful and valuable, so useful and new.
0: And then does that explain why we uh, find scientific questions more demanding of explanations than religious questions? Because we expect a factive, enlightening answer about the tides rather than how Jesus how blood is, how wine is turned into Jesus's blood, (laughs) Um, something like that?
1: Partially, but not entirely. So insofar as we have looked at that, uh, it is true that people do expect science to have answers more, to to questions more than they expect religion to, at least for the questions that we've studied, you know, on average, that's what people think. But even when you take that into account, there's still a gap between science and religion. Um, People also think that answers to the religion questions are more likely to be beyond the scope of human comprehension, right? So maybe there's an answer, but we can understand it. Um, but that also only partially seems to explain what's going on with these kinds of judgments. Um, so with respect to that phenomenon in particular, I think, I think there's something extra going on there, which has to do with the extent to which our, our, on average, our sort of religious belief systems even have an epistemic function. Right. So a lot of what we're hmm. talking about is related to inquiry, right? asking questions, trying to get answers, evaluating those answers with respect to some goal-like learning. And so if mm-hmm. you have some domains that have served some function other than giving us accurate representations of the world, they serve just like other kinds of social, uh, moral, yeah. emotional kinds of roles, um, then the currency with which we evaluate them is not going to be predominantly something like a, an epistemic currency. And so I think that's part of what's going on in those cases.
0: No, that no, that makes complete sense uh, to me. Because I mean, when I think about it, I mean, the only very religious person in my life, and maybe calling her very religious is overdoing it, but is my mom, and she goes to church every Sunday, but it really has nothing to do with epistemology. <laughs> I mean, it was what, she's not trying. She's not trying to learn anything. It's more of a a comfort sort of thing, and I don't mm-hmm. think she she even asks questions like is there really a god it's it's just a a comfort to her so Mm -hmm. so that that makes a lot of sense to me and so we've talked about one side of this so far um what sort of observations prompt us to ask why but the other part is that only some answers are satisfying and are the satisfying answers then the ones in which we have learned something
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So that's exactly our prediction. And I'd say we have good data that the satisfying answers are the ones from which we think we have learned something (laughs) and less good evidence that the ones that we find satisfying are the ones that we have in fact learned from. Um, So the answer is kind of a a partial yes. I mean, we we already talked about some of the characteristics that people like in explanations, right? Like... They like simpler explanations. In a lot of cases, they like theological explanations and so on. So all of those sorts of things seem to play a role in predicting what kinds of explanations people will find satisfying. But on top of that, you can also just explicitly ask people to what extent they think they've learned from an explanation, to what extent they think they've learned something useful, and so on. And those are among the, the strongest predictors of how satisfying they find the explanation.
0: And going back, I guess, to where we started, are people also going to find answers more appealing if they are simpler if they're broader maybe maybe if they don't ha- and maybe i'm not using this right but if they don't have too much latent scope
1: yeah that's right Broad latent scope. Uh, all of
0: these sorts of things
1: um in general yes i mean the studies that have been designed okay. to test that specifically tend to find that one one complication is that all of these are sort of all else being equal kinds of predictions And for a lot of these characteristics of explanations, it's very hard to hold one, to hold everything else fixed, right? Like everything about the prior probability of the explanation and the likelihood of the data given the explanation, everything else fixed except for this one dimension, and then see if that makes a difference. And so I think in part because of that, you do get some interesting conflicting results with respect to simplicity. So there's a handful of results that suggest people prefer more complex explanations. And at least, I mean, I think to some extent, the... um, The verdict is still, the jury's still out on this, but I think it's because in some cases, more complicated explanations actually are going to confer greater probability than the explanandum, right? So on the one hand, you prefer simplicity. On the other hand, you prefer explanations that make the explanandum more more likely. So sometimes those are going to be intention, And also complex explanations are sometimes more informative. They sometimes just like tell you more stuff about the relevant causal mechanisms, for example. And so... um, because of that, I think there's going to be circumstances under which you see people preferring more complex explanations. And that has been observed in some cases.
0: Hmm. And the last time I took a psychology class was in high school. and I Mm -hmm. took AP psych. And something that I distinctly recall about it was all of the handouts we would get in which there were sort of maybe somebody's head, the outline of somebody's head, and then all sorts of boxes and uh, (laughs) arrows, like uh, memory storage, memory retrieval, uh, and boxes pointing to boxes. And I wonder if much of your work hypothesizes or proposes the cognitive mechanisms that promote this uh, selectivity in attention and curiosity and Explanation seeking,
1: for the most part, I would say no. Uh, that hasn't been the focus of of my research. There's, you know, psychologists sometimes appeal to what are called Mars levels of explanation. I don't know if that's something that that you or your listeners are likely to be familiar with. Um, Did you this, say this Mars comes, level? Mars, yes, Mars, like the a, planet. Okay. Oh no, okay, M A R R apostrophe, s because this refers to a person <laughs> oh, named <okay>. Mars. <laughs>
0: Okay. I'm glad um, we clarified that. Yes,
1: absolutely. Um, and so th- this comes from a very influential book called Vision that was published by the late cognitive scientist, David Marr. Um, and one of the things that he does in that book is talk about how it is that you can explain an information processing system like human cognition. And he pauses, he talks about three different levels of explanation. And I, I can go through all three of them if you want, but I'll just talk about the two that are most relevant here.
0: I would actually um, like you want to hear, hear all three. All I'll tell three. you all three.
1: Sure. Um, so the... Um, the highest level is what he called the computational level. And I think that's an unfortunate name because now when we hear computational level, we think like a computational model or something like that, but that doesn't seem mm-hmm. to be the way that he was using it. He meant something okay. more like a functional characterization where you're trying to say what problem something is solving um, and okay. what would actually solve that problem. So for example, a calculator uh, at a computational level, it's it, it's it's doing something like arithmetic. Um then there's the the level of algorithms and representations. Usually, we just refer to as the algorithmic level, and that says something about what's the actual algorithm that it's using in order to approximate what it should given its computational level problem. Right. So, for example, a calculator is going to have a slightly different uh, uh, representations and algorithms if it's if it's in binary versus if it uses a decimal system, and if you know, depending on you know, there's there's more than one way to to basically implement um, something like addition. And then the third level is the implementation level. And that's something like, well, what's the physical stuff that actually uh, realizes the representations and algorithms? And so that might be uh, digital chips, or it could be neurons, or it could be tinker toys or something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you can see, as, as you and I'm guessing a lot of your readers are familiar with, like, basic ideas and philosophy of mind, you can see how this is going to, like, maybe be, be sort of natural or appealing for someone who's a functionalist because you have these levels of explanation that you can appeal to that are kind sure. of realization independent if you're talking about the the say uh, computational level and so on so i i would i can re-ask your question that you asked me is something like to what extent do you see yourself working at these different levels yeah, and I, yeah. would That's that exactly work... I, <laughs> I would say that my work exactly what i was i would say that My work definitely does not engage with the implementation level. You know, I mean, obviously I assume that everything that we study is implemented in brains and neurons. Yeah, that's right. But we know we're not studying the neural circuits that implement this and so on. Um, I think my work is mostly at somewhere between computation and algorithm and representation because we're trying to give a sort of functional characterization of what somebody is doing, right? Like, can we describe something like the input-output relationships or something that would allow us to predict their patterns of judgments? Can we say something about why they might have the kinds of uh, systematic preferences that they do and what the consequences of that are for say learning or inference um, and so on.
0: (laughs) Okay um so where where would this diagram drawing be then is that more <laughs> at the algorithm and representation yes, level yeah so what
1: you're describing the okay. kind of like standard boxes and arrows of like the phonological loop or something like that that you I it exactly. I never took ap psychology but that seems like something you might have learned um <laughs> typically typically that's thought of as something it's something like the algorithm representation level um and I and i should I should say just because I feel like it'd be responsible not to not everybody agrees that this is a useful set of distinctions or the right set of distinctions or exactly the most useful framework I I mean, I think it's had mm-hmm. pushback from kind of both sides, both from the top down where people feel like um, you want, you should have more of your work done at the computational level than the, than some of the lower levels. And then also people from the bottom up who feel like once we really understand the implementation, like that's, what's going to do the explanatory work and there's not so much role for these other things. So there's definitely been pushback and discussion, some of it involving philosophers on these three levels.
0: Yeah, I, I, I had planned. I was curious about it. I was going to ask later, but it seems like the right time now, what sort of dialogue you have with neuroscientists mm-hmm. and I am taking a neuroscience course right now and my professor was used this analogy that where we are with neuroscience is he's the analogy of a car and that it's like we have a car and we, we can take it apart and I guess we can see that there are screws and we know they're very important, but we still don't really know how they all work uh, mm-hmm. when, you, when, when you put it all together. And I wonder if your work at level one, um, the functional or problem solving level is, well, I guess if level three just isn't sophisticated enough at this point to be very useful um, at level one. Or with your work, yeah, if, that, yeah, if yeah. that makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it does make sense. So I think that is the view I had by the end of my undergrad, where I had done a little bit of functional MRI, and I had done some EEG studies and things like that. And I felt like at that point, for the questions that I was interested in, I felt like we just did not have the the tools at the neuroscientific level to really help address those questions in an informative way. I think there, there's been a lot of progress since that point. And so, you know, every once in a while I think to myself, you know, I should really get up to speed on more contemporary cognitive neuroscience so that I can I can reevaluate that because I think we are getting to the point where there have been more and more insights coming from uh, a lower level that actually could be useful in constraining our higher level theorizing. Um so I guess I guess I um, I, I, I'm more com- I'm more confident saying that you know at the point I chose to focus on what I did, I think that was the right analysis. I think it's going to be changing over time. It's a moving target, and I think it depends on your research question. I'm less confident right now saying that um, I'm you know warranted in ignoring neuroscience as much as I do most of the time.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I I won't impress you then on how <laughs> neuroscience relates to your work. Uh, but, and I know that you don't work at this level to this algorithmic level, but do you have any sense from other people's research what sort of mechanisms are at play in our explanatory preferences and processes?
1: Does that make sense? I mean I, and I shouldn't say I, not that I don't at all you know think about the algorithmic and representation level I do I just don't think I have you know evidence that constrains claims at that level very strongly um I guess I'll, 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 when it comes to explanation evaluation, I guess I would say that there is kind of like two approaches. And I think as a field, we're trying to figure out how they relate to each other. So one is to characterize things in terms of some very formal, um, uh, often normative kind of standards, so something like Bayesian inference, right? So you could think that the, the right way, the way we should evaluate explanations is that basically we figure out what their posterior probability is in light of the data. And like, that's that's what we ought to do. Um, and mm-hmm. to some extent, it seems like we're, we are consistent with that in lots of cases, but nobody thinks that the way we do that is by like explicitly calculating Bayes' rule. Um, and so there's kind of a puzzle right, of right. like, okay, well, what are, what are we doing if we're not explicitly evaluating yeah. Bayes' rule? And you could think that some of these other things that I'm describing, like the kinds of rules for simplicity that people use and so on, maybe those are kind of like rough heuristics that are going to, at least under some conditions, kind of approximate the output of something like a Bayesian inference process. And so we have some evidence about the conditions under which that does or doesn't seem to be true. And then there's all of these other things that people have documented, not just in the context of explanation, but other psychological processes as well that seem to make a, a difference. So for example, there's something that people refer to as fluency. And that's basically something like the ease of processing some stimulus. So something that's very familiar to you that uses very high frequency words and so on is going to be processed more fluently than something that's less familiar to you, those lower frequency words, and so on, and we should expect, based on lots of research, that people are going to prefer explanations that are higher have higher fluency. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I mean that that's getting to be at the algorithmic level because the thought is that it's something about the actual, you know, processing of the content being easier. Um, and I think you do see those sorts of effects, but I don't know how, quite it, how to think about those in relation to all this other stuff. <laughs> Sorry, go
0: ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it seems that the fluency uh, contradicts or contrasts with something that you, or the preference for fluency, um, contrasts with what we mentioned earlier, or you mentioned earlier with, which is our, our preference for jargon that we don't totally understand. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, so that's true. So,
1: um, I mean, part of what I think is happening there is that things that are more fluent give you a greater sense of understanding, Mm-hmm. um, but things that involve jargon basically suggest that there's something new that you you're learning, or that the the person telling you the explanation knows. And so, I think what mm-hmm. you're getting is sort of like those two things uh, going pushing you in different directions.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, I mentioned t- Telly your papers with yeah. Telly Davudi yeah. earlier uh, because the two of you also worked a lot on religion and scientific explanation, and are are those papers covering then different questions than what we talked about in your work with Lequin? Because I mean, I see the, the titles, uh, Mystery and the Unknown in Science and Religion, and that sort of like relates to the tides and Jesus's wine right, 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 and right. Um, blood.
1: So I guess I would say the, the big picture is very similar. So those papers and the ones, some of the ones that we talked about involving Emily Liquid as the first author, um, are motivated by the idea that at least on average for many people in our particular time and place, um, religion and religious explanations tend to play largely non epistemic kinds of roles, right? The functions they play have to do with social, emotional, moral kinds of ends and values, as opposed to kind of more narrowly epistemic aims, like being accurate. Um, and so a lot of the predictions that those papers test stem out of that idea, right? Like if you have a belief system whose function is, for example, to roughly be truth tracking, what sorts of features should it have? And if you have a belief system that has goals that sometimes compete with truth tracking kinds of considerations, because it's more about, say, promoting you know social cohesion or something like that. Um, what should they look like? And so we find these systematic differences across various kinds of judgments. Um, now, the actual findings in those papers are are different, even though they fit with that big picture. so if you if you want, I can give you um, the, the, the yeah, yeah, please. headline please. version of, of some of them. Um, so sure. the one that the, the one of them uh, does relate very much to the idea that science has a different kind of role for inquiry and demand for explanation. And so, One of the things that we found is that the the modal way in which people express ignorance across scientific and religious questions is different. So if you ask a scientific why question, the kind of form of ignorance that people find most natural is it's unknown to me. And in the case of a religious question, they think it's more natural to say it's a mystery. And so there's two relevant differences there. One is like to me versus just like in general, right? So it's kind of like the scope of the ignorance. Is it just me or is it everybody? And then the, the contrast between unknown and a mystery where um, I, I think the difference is, is kind of subtle there, but you might think that mm-hmm. unknown means sort of like currently unknown, but in principle, knowable and something that we should look into. And in the case of mystery, it seems like people have the view that perhaps it's fundamentally unknowable. And in fact, some of the time we get people in- agreeing that for religious questions, it's not just that it's unknowable, it's that you ought not to inquire. So there's also sort of different norms that are operating there. And we also find that if you, in fact, answer a question with ignorance. So, you know, there's an expert in this field. There's a question about science or religion. The expert doesn't know. Um, That's seen as more threatening in the case of science than in the case of religion. So uh, let me try to peel your your intuitions here. Um, So if you had something like, why does the moon cause the tides? And the answer is like, it's a mystery, don't know. Does that make you Mm -hmm. think it's any less likely that the moon causes the tides? I mean, no. in that case, you might have so much evidence that the moon causes the tides that you don't get anything there. But mm-hmm. in some cases, you might think, you know, I'm trying to think of a, of a more obscure, I don't know. I mean, suppose, suppose people found that a particular disease was, uh, you know, more, more, more common among people who have brown hair than blonde hair, but like it's completely mysterious what the mechanism is. That, mm-hmm. might, that might make you a little more doubtful that it's a real finding. You know, like mm-hmm. maybe it was just a fluke or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in some cases, sort of the absence of an explanation or something being a known or a mystery might it might make you question the premise of the question itself. And we find that effect to be stronger for science and for religion. So if you have the equivalent like complete mystery, have no idea why God answers prayers or how God answers prayers, that doesn't seem to be threatening at all to the mm-hmm. to the belief right. that God does answer prayers. Um so those are, those are some of the main findings in that paper, which again, I think are consistent with this broader picture about science having this kind of more epistemic role in people's psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, the other paper looked specifically at existential questions and answers. So things like how the universe came to exist and what happens after you die and things like that. And we contrasted the properties of scientific and religious answers to those questions. And so there's, there's a bunch of findings in that paper, but some of the main ones are that, um, so on average... People think that the scientific explanations kind of have higher epistemic merits, you know, more evidence, more logical, things like that. The religious ones have higher non-epistemic merits. People think they're more comforting. They promote moral behavior more um, and so on. Um, One of the findings that I think is most interesting is that we can look at how people's attributions of epistemic and non-epistemic merits to these explanations relates to their personal endorsement or belief in that explanation. Right? So, for example, we have these five-point ratings where people can basically say, like, I totally endorse this explanation or I totally reject this explanation. So we have this continuous rating of how strongly they endorse it. Um, one thing we find for both science and religion, I think not surprisingly, is that the more you endorse an explanation, the more you tend to think it has epistemic and, and non-epistemic merits. Right, So that kind of makes, makes sense. But we find this asymmetry between the science and the religion case where at every level of endorsement, People think that scientific explanations do better on scientific merit, on epistemic merits, than religious explanations, and the reverse for non-epistemic. So this is another place where I want a whiteboard, but let me try to communicate in 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 yeah. uh, speech no, what I, that means. I think I'm following. Um, what that basically means is if you have a person who say gives a rating of four in terms of how strongly they endorse a given scientific explanation, it seems like they ha- that explanation had to meet a higher threshold. for for like evidence and logic to meet a four if it's a scientific explanation um, than if it's a religious explanation. Whereas for the the, um, non-epistemic merits, um, a scientific explanation, sorry, a religious explanation would have to meet a higher Mm -hmm. threshold on those dimensions to get a four than a scientific explanation. Does that make sense? Should I try again?
0: (laughs) No, no, it, it makes sense. Okay. That's very, that is interesting. That is a really neat finding. Um, I guess this is somewhat religious in nature, depending on who you ask, but another thread of your research that I found very compelling was your work on moral reasoning Mm -hmm. and teleology comes back here. But another paper that you worked on was, and I'll, I'll quote the title again, um, you wrote this one with Laurie and C. Laurie and D. Kellerman. Mm-hmm. Um, why belief in human purpose prompts moral condemnation of individuals who fail to fulfill it? And that that really jumped out at me. What was the story there?
1: Yeah, so this this is from my current PhD student Casey Laurie, and this is is a project that actually began with her undergraduate senior thesis with Deborah Kellerman, um, which is why you know sort of became a fun collaboration between the three of us. But oh, she cool. was really interested in whether or not people think teleologically about the existence of humans, right? So will people endorse claims like humans exist in order to reproduce or humans exist in order to care after the environment to care for the environment or humans exist to to look be, after each other.
0: maybe children do, I'm guessing, uh, based on oh. what you told me earlier.
1: Uh, oh, whether well, children endorse that? We know, we haven't looked at this developmentally, but the prediction would be okay. that they would be at least as teleological as the adults are. Okay. um so first finding of that paper is that, A lot of adults are like quite willing to accept claims like humans exist in order to reproduce and humans exist in order to um, care for each other or the environment and so on. Right. So, So a majority of our participants endorsed at least one claim like that about the purpose of human existence. And then the next question was, does that relate to their moral judgment? So, for example, suppose you have somebody who chooses not to reproduce. How do people judge that person? Do they think that there's something morally Wrong with choosing not to reproduce, or morally wrong with you know, a lot choosing, of do. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, or morally wrong with choosing not to care for the environment, or morally wrong with um, choosing not to care for others. So it turns out there's a relationship between these two judgments. So to the oh, extent that somebody endorses one of these teleological claims about the existence of the human species, they are more likely to endorse the corresponding claim about there being something morally wrong with choosing not to fulfill that function, right? So if you think that humans exist in order to reproduce, you're more likely to think that it's morally wrong for somebody to choose not to reproduce. Huh.
0: I wonder if th- this sort of um, very, I, I say base, but not like in a debasing sort of way, but very low level um, intuition or inclination we have is part of what motivates so much homophobia. Uh, the yeah. idea that- yeah people have this belief that men and women are are sort of meant to be together. So it's immoral not to be that way.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you say that because some of the quotes that we pulled to sort of motivate this idea come from people talking about homosexuality. Um, And I do have, uh, this is work that's not published yet. This is my postdoc, Emily Foster Hansen. But that looks more specifically at people's teleological beliefs about mothers. All right, so to what what extent do people think it's the function of mothers to look after children as opposed to fathers for example um, and we do find hmm. that a lot of people endorse pretty strong functional claims about you know mother's mothers functions with respect huh. to child rearing, Um, and that that does relate to their views about the differential roles of mothers versus fathers in parenting
0: hmm. this, is, this opens so many more questions <laughs> I mean now I mean now it just opens so much social practical political relevance yeah and yeah absolutely
1: we're just starting to explore some of it but i completely agree
0: very cool and an, another question or, or topic that you discussed was people's reflections on their own moral reasoning mm-hmm. and the paper that i have in mind here is one maybe another postdoc or graduate student but C. Kusimano on people acknowledge and condone their own morally motivated reasoning what um, was right that paper about
1: yeah yeah so this is cory kusimano who was a postdoc and he's now an assistant professor at yale um oh great so part of what you know a lot of the questions that we explored in in that paper and another one with him as well are related to issues that come up in the ethics of belief and philosophy Right, so there's these, I think, you know, quite live debates about whether or not moral considerations should influence what you believe or change epistemic thresholds for what you believe, and so on. And so we were interested in in those sets of questions. And what we found in that paper, I mean, we find a lot of things in that paper, but to try to to try to like distill some some uh, uh, sort of summaries there. Um, we find that a lot of people will recognize and endorse the role of moral considerations in what they believe. You know, so they will, if they think that it would be morally better to believe that animals experience conscious pain, um, they will say that that's one of the, you know, that they they are more likely to believe it if they think it's morally good to believe it. Um, And they will recognize that these kinds of moral considerations influence their belief formation, and they will think that they are right to have these kinds of moral considerations influence their belief formation. And part of what's what's sort of methodologically challenging about trying to ask these questions is pulling apart the influence of moral considerations from merely evidential considerations, right? So people might also vary in the extent to which they think they have evidence that animals, for example, feel pain and so on. Um, and so we, in various ways, try to elicit their judgments about how much evidence they have for various propositions. And we find that even when you take into account how much evidence they think they have, the extent to which they think it would be morally good for something to believe something Um, plays an additional predictive role in how likely they are to say that they believe it. So it doesn't seem to just be a reflection of how much evidence they think they have.
0: Hmm. Well, I'm not going to keep bringing up random papers and asking you to explain them, but there is one one more I'll ask Mm -hmm. you about. So returning, I guess, to, I think it's relevant to Mars three levels and Mm -hmm. the words that jumped out at me were, functional, representational, and physical, even though I know you used different words. But I pulled this paper from your your syllabus for the cognitive science seminar that you taught. Mm-hmm. And it's one that you wrote. And it's can science explain the human mind? Ah, right. <laughs> and, and see this this directs very I mean this connects very closely to these three levels of explanation. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what you think. Presumably, you think the answer is yes, since you're in psychology. But how did you, am I right? And how did you sort of defend the yesness that you support?
1: Um, So, yes, I do think science can largely explain the human mind. Good. good. Um, In that paper, we don't defend that. (laughs) Okay. In the paper, we document cases where people seem to maybe not think that. So this is a paper that was uh, written with Sarah Gottlieb, who was then my PhD student. And part of what motivated it was just an intuition that she and I shared, which was that uh, if you look at what kinds of headlines about science are exciting or what sorts of things generate skepticism, it seems like people are really excited and have no problem thinking that psychology can explain lots of things. But when you get to something like explaining romantic love or explaining belief in God or explaining um, uh, moral behavior, it seems like at least some people have the view that science either can't or shouldn't explain those kinds of aspects of the human mind. And so we were interested, first of all, whether or not like our sense that this was how lay people were thinking about scientific explanation of the mind, whether or not that was true. And then if so, why? So for, for the first part, uh, yes, our intuition basically cashed out. So people on average think that science can and should explain things like depth perception and motor control and acoustic localization of, of sounds and headaches and like uh, forgetting things, like lots of things people, you know, on average have no trouble saying that science can one day fully explain this. And in fact, science should explain this. But then when you got to things like romantic love, morality, belief in God, Um, We had at least a bunch of our participants. I mean, not everybody. There's variation here, and it's important to acknowledge that. But a lot of people um, were more uneasy with the idea that science could or should explain those aspects of the human mind. And so then our next question was, well, you know, what is it about those phenomena that differentiates them from things like motor control and headaches where people have no problem saying that science can and should explain them? And so we found a bunch of things that were predictors, but the two most dramatic ones were Thinking that something is is um, uniquely human in the sense that it contributes to making humans exceptional is something that predicts people thinking science can't or shouldn't explain this. Um, and so to, to the extent that you basically think one of these characteristics is shared with non-humans, you're, you're less likely to be bothered by the idea that science can and should explain it. And the other one was the extent to which it seems to have an introspective phenomenology to which you have privileged access, right? So... So you can know if you're experiencing romantic love. I can I can guess as someone who's observing you or measuring your brainwaves or something like that. But only you can know. And so right. phenomena for which people thought there was that kind of first person privileged access were phenomena for which they thought that science can't fully explain them and shouldn't explain them.
0: Right. And just for the record, though, you you don't hold this belief. I'm presuming. Like, I do, do not you think... hold this belief now. <laughs> okay. So you. I mean, you... Yeah. You don't really endorse the hard problemness of the of Chalmers' hard problem of consciousness. Um,
1: I don't think so. I mean, it's it's hard to say because it's not like I have an account of how it is we're going to explain conscious experience and rich phenomenology, right? right? I mean, I, um, uh, and and the other thing that I would not want to be on record saying because I don't believe is you know the the way we asked our participants this question was something like science will one day fully explain blank, you know, will fully explain romantic love or something like that. Um, And there's lots of ways to understand that, but I certainly wouldn't want to be, you know, even though I think science can in some sense fully explain these things by, by saying that I don't mean to reject the idea that there's also value to like the way in which literature allows us to understand romantic love or, you know, the way in which ritual allows us to understand things. Right. So like, I feel like there's, there's lots of senses in which we can gain valuable understanding Other than a sort of like narrowly scientific understanding. And so I I wouldn't want to be understood as rejecting those other ways of kind of uh, gaining some valuable human understanding. Um, But uh, I mean, I'm basically a physicalist of some variety, and I think that all of this stuff is Mm -hmm. is susceptible to scientific inquiry
0: well there are many many other areas of your research that i would have loved to talk about particularly the like two things that jumped out at me were uh, the folk biological concepts which you talked a little mm-hmm. bit about when you mentioned the zebras and then mm-hmm. intuitions and authenticity but in the interest of time i'd like to finish with maybe some some more broad questions again okay sounds good. and you have this tremendous philosophical background as well, and you're, and you're an adjunct professor. Well, I don't know if that's the right word, but you're a professor. I think I'm an a, a affiliate. A f- I always forget. I'm an associate. Professor. I'm an affiliate. Yeah.
1: I'm something of our philosophy department. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you work closely with philosophers, and I mean, it was L.A. Paul who suggested that I reach out mm-hmm. to you in the first place. And how does philosophy inform the work that you're doing today in the psychology department? I know that is a, a pretty broad question, yeah, but what it, is the the role right, it plays?
1: Right. I mean, part of the reason it's hard for me to answer is because, you know, I think my whole career, I've wanted there to be something very general that I can say about the relationship between philosophy and psychology. And I think increasingly, I feel like I don't have something very general to say. I feel like in every project, the role ends up being a little bit different, but I can tell you what some of the characteristic roles are. So one of them is that I think that Across the board, and in ways that psychologists often don't appreciate, we are often importing normative notions in the background or kind of making normative assumptions in the background of the way that we ask our questions and, and how we think about things. Right. So, if, if we're thinking about something like how to improve learning, right, there's all sorts of stuff built in there about like what do we mean by learning <laughs> and, you know, what, and uh, what kind of learning is valuable and so on. And so, I think one role it plays or can play is in helping us identify and scrutinize and improve those kinds of normative assumptions that are in the background of our inquiry. Um, Another role that I think it can play is in mapping the conceptual space. So for example, when I started thinking about the psychology of explanation, there weren't really lots of accounts out there of like what the structure of explanation is like. Um, But I could look at the philosophy literature and have this really useful sort of like sketch of like, okay, well, there's this family of causal views, and they might look like this. And there's this family of like subsumption theories, and they might look like this. And there's this other, you know, family of more pragmatic views. And they look like, right, you know, it sort of like sketches a space of possible views. And there, in some sense, I'm not using the philosophers on their own terms, because I'm then translating those as empirical hypotheses about human cognition, which is not typically how they're intended. Um, But it's still very valuable to kind of have, have like the sketch of possible views that one can have. Uh, and how the views hang together and what their implications are and so on. So that's another, I'd say, common role for philosophy uh, in my own research. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, there's, there, there's probably others. Those, I'd say, are maybe the, the, the two most widespread. Uh, I mean, it's worth saying, too, I also, uh, you know, I've also published in philosophy journals, and I also care about contributing to the philosophy literature, right? And so in that sense... I don't care so much if you call what I'm doing philosophy or psychology but some of the time it's engaging with philosophical projects like you know in their own terms.
0: And have those mainly been about explanation? The the philosophy papers? Yes,
1: I think that is true. Um or causation. So, you know, in the in the general vicinity, but if I think about I mean, it sort of depends on how you define what counts as a philosophy paper, if it's about it being, being in a philosophy journal or not. If you define a philosophy mm-hmm. paper as a paper that doesn't report any new data, <laughs> then, <laughs> I, have, <laughs> then yeah. I have, you know, nice. maybe two more canonical philosophy papers. And one of them is um, with Thomas uh, Blanchard, who's a philosopher, and, and, Vassel, and it, had, it really tackled questions about um, what's called stability in the causation literature. And so it was really more directly about causation, although the distinction that it argues for came out of my thinking about explanation and the role of generalization and explanation. Um, I have a paper with Sarah Aronowitz, which is about learning from simulation. And so there we do cite empirical results, but it's really more of a theoretical project about the sense in which you can learn from mental simulation. Hmm. Um, And then I have a lot of, I mean, I, I have other papers published in philosophy journals, but where it's you know, they 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 do present novel data and they're like a little bit closer to canonical experimental philosophy, even though I'd say most of what I do is not canonical experimental philosophy.
0: Hmm. Okay, and now psychology at its broadest uh, is the study of the human mind. And I wonder on a more personal level, if upon introspection, again, flagging that word, you <laughs> find that the way... You find that your own research has changed the way you view your own mind. If it makes your mind more transparent in any ways, are you like, are there things that you used to do or that you used to see other people do that now make just so much more sense to you?
1: Hmm. Well, while I'm giving myself a minute to think about that, I'll just flag that my, uh, my non-human, uh, My colleague, colleagues who study not non-human colleagues, my colleagues who study non-human animals, would probably (laughs) not not accept your definition of psychology, right? Just because a lot of them don't take themselves to be studying the human mind, right? So then you end up having to say something about Mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, cognition more generally or uh, the minds Mm -hmm. more generally. Um, But certainly, I've I've been studying the human mind. Um, You know, I'd like to say yes, and I I'm sure there have been influences, but. I think they're a lot more indirect and maybe infrequent than than I would like. Um, I mean I think one consequence of studying psychology as has come through in this conversation is that I'm very skeptical of some of my own first person judgments about myself, right? So if you if, if if you ask me sort of an autobiographical story about why I came to be a certain way, I'm very skeptical on of the accuracy of people's reports about these sorts of things. I think there's all sorts of ways in which those are like post hoc Reconstructions of things, right? And so, so that's that comes, I think, to some extent from just studying psychology, not necessarily my research specifically. One thing that's also happened to me as a scientist is that I'm, you know, I study explanation, and of course, as a scientist, I'm engaged in the project of looking for explanations. Um, and I think part of the reason why I'm attracted to certain features of explanations and what I study is is because I'm very strongly drawn to them. You know, I would really like to give an incredibly parsimonious explanation for lots of features of human cognition and moreover it'd be great if it was teleological in the sense that it identified the the sort of computational level problem that people are solving and could explain what they're doing in terms of its contribution to solving that problem like that's i'd love that and at the same time i know that that's something we like about explanations that might not always be true might not always lead to the best inquiry and so on and so i think there's a um there's a certain kind of self-consciousness or or um uh, awareness of the ways in which my own explanatory preferences are driving what I'm doing. And then maybe a kind of like another voice in my head that says like, you know, but you should be a little bit careful in taking that too seriously or in thinking that the explanation is going to look like that. Um, so those mm-hmm. are some that come to mind. I mean, the one that I would love that I've, I've um, mentioned to people before is that, you know, I wish knowing more about psychology and cognitive development made me a better parent, but there mm-hmm. I can sadly say that I I do not think it has. <laughs> I think it's probably. You know and maybe in some cases made me a little bit more aware of like stages of development and things that are like particular to particular ages that my kids have been and so on um but mostly it has not made me you know like more patient or have any other kinds of characteristics that would mm. be excellent to have as a parent
0: well you you might have just uh, touched in the negative a bit on what mm-hmm. i was going to ask you next which is if there's anything instructive or normative about your research Like, have you been able to draw anything practical from it to improve your own life in any way? And I suppose not in in terms of parenting, Uh, but anywhere else that comes to mind?
1: Huh, that's interesting. To improve my own life specifically. I mean, had you just asked, do I think there are normative conclusions or anything that normative that comes out of it? Then I would say, yes, Um, I think there are are ways of thinking about, for example, the function of explanation or the function of our beliefs for human psychology that then allow us to ask new kinds of normative questions like, okay, well, given that explanation plays this particular role in inquiry in these cases, how could it do so better? How ought we to explain if this inquiry goal is our is our goal and so on? Um, so I do think that there's those kinds of normative conclusions. Um, for my own life, I don't think so. I mean, I think one thing that's been interesting about thinking about scientific and religious belief, which came up in some of the papers that you mentioned and has been a theme in a lot of what I've been studying recently, is that I feel like I've been forced to just think about the extent to which I do or don't hold any kinds of religious beliefs. Um, you know, I don't I don't have a lot of, or maybe most or any of the standard ones. But on the other hand, to the extent I'm an atheist, like what does that mean for that to be, you know, if, I, mm-hmm. if I'm an atheist, um what does it mean for that to not be a religious belief? It's a belief that arguably has like, sort of some religious content, but what's the attitude with which I'm holding it? And is the attitude with which I hold that belief fundamentally different from the attitude with which somebody holds a typical theistic belief and so on. And I think, you know, on average, the answers, yes, those are different, but it's something I've had to think about, right? And like what would justify that belief and so on. Um, And then one example I use for, you know, I think something that gets closer to maybe a canonical religious belief that I think I do hold. So I, um, you know, I think my kids are the best kids in the world. Um, and if you push me on that and said (laughs) like, okay, well, is that like, is that accurate? Is it like an epistemically warranted belief? I kind of want to say like, well, you're missing the point. Like when I say my kids are the best kids in the world, I'm, I'm telling you something about how important they are and I'm telling you about my values and I'm signaling something about their relate, my relationship to them. And if you ask me to like give you its epistemic merits, I sort of feel like, no, no, that's just not the, like you misunderstood the belief game we're playing here (laughs) or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think it sort of forced me to think about like, well, what are the other beliefs that I maybe hold in that way? where there's some sense in which I believe them, but the sense in which I believe them is just very, very different from the sense in which I believe that I'm having a conversation with you at 2.22 p.m. Eastern time on a particular date and so on.
0: Well, speaking about values, I will end on this, perhaps the most important note of our conversation. (laughs) And Twitter tells me that you are a devourer of chocolate. This is true. I'm wondering if you have any favorites or recent favorites or recommendations in the chocolate oh, department? Gosh, you mentioned Mars. Yeah. I just had Twix ice cream, but it wasn't very good. That was my um, breakfast before we talked.
1: Yeah, no. normally I'm more of a dark chocolate person, um, okay. but I'm also very sensitive to caffeine. And so I've discovered I can't have too much very, very dark chocolate right before bed. And so I have to take it to my office with me so that I can eat squares throughout the day. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but there's, I mean, there's, there's tons of very good dark chocolate. I I mean, I'm also, I'm also mostly vegan, but fortunately most good chocolate is vegan. So maybe maybe Mm. this is a tip I can share with people is, um, you know, you don't want your chocolate to have something other than cocoa butter as the fat. That is a very bad sign with respect to good chocolate, but, um,
0: no, that is a good tip. All right. Well, this has, (laughs) I, I've recorded like 80 of these now, and this is definitely the, most information-packed hour or hour and 20 minutes I've oh had. And I don't know if that's was... good or bad. <laughs> no, it was great. I am uh, I mean, I've been thinking a lot more about how I talk since I started doing this. Mm-hmm. And I am just amazed over the past 80 minutes at your memory and how quickly you can recall all of these experiments and co-authors and threads of your research. So this has been uh, a really Awesome conversation. So, thanks so much for doing it with me.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to do it. This has been fun.
0: Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so.